On this episode of Moments That Matter, we jump back in for part two of last week's presentation by Dr. Ken Badley. This past fall semester, Southern Wesleyan University hosted its first virtual faith integration in the Academy Conference with Dr. Badley as the keynote speaker. He's graciously allowed us to use his presentation in this form and his message that includes both the integration of faith and learning, as well as the integration of faith and living. Well, I talked about parking, and, and those of you that have read Arthur Holmes' uh, book, uh, The Idea of a Christian College, which was one of the original kinds of documents in this whole conversation, uh, published in the 1970s, uh, he taught at Wheaton, but he was Reformed. And uh, for him, uh, at least in this book, which is not a big book, but it's a powerful one, uh, everything on the campus witnesses to God's redemptive work in Christ, and uh, including the parking policy, if I may quote that student again, who I believe was actually me when I was in seminary. Um, it was me who noticed that the president had this primo parking spot. I want to show this slide and then we'll stop and talk some more. But um, is it possible that um, we don't think about food services or residence life? Or for those of us in the academic side of the campus, that we don't take student services seriously when we think about students uh, coming to understand God's redemptive work in, in the world and in their own lives. And uh, so I've been working on an article this semester with the vice president of student services at a university and on character, character development. And I've realized that uh, I'm one of the guilty academics who has not taken uh, student services seriously and, uh, and the students experience. So I want to stop there again for a minute and uh, and ask whether um, anybody wants to, can we talk about that or ask a question or say, Ken, you are so wrong. I could have slept in this morning. I just wanted to highlight something that I know my colleagues um, hear me highlight all the time and are, are quite tired of it, I'm sure. But um, I teach online exclusively. And we have language at our university that, almost exclusively excludes the online student. Um, we talk about the facilities. We talk about the campus experience. Um, you've been doing it in your presentation, talking about the classroom. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I try to do, and I really do, I really am annoying about it, and I don't mind being annoying about it, is to remind people every time they do it, that we have a lot of students who never step foot on campus. Um, and this is really, um, this institutional model concept uh, is very impactful to me. And I'm going to be presenting later about the online classroom. So <laughs> I might be changing my presentation uh, between now and 1115, um, FYI, Tyler. Uh, but that, um, that the, it's so structured. The online campus is so structured and everybody goes through the same processes and they have to be in there at the same time. And so we have very much uh, created this idea of sort of a lack of individuality in the online uh, classroom. I think it's, it's a group moving through a cohort mm -hmm. moving through. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I was just sketching out your, your rope, and I realized that, um, that that social space 
uh, it truly is a liminal space. It truly is a thin space because just like what we're doing here, it's over the airwaves. It's, mm -hmm. it's made up of uh, signals, not even, not even a personal incarnation. We can't be embodied in their living room as they're doing their assignments. But how can we be? So this is that's really impactful to me and, and I think translates very well into the online environment. Well, thank you. And I will say, I didn't come here to advertise except for the books, um, but I've been giving workshops for the last few weeks with a number of just volunteers. I mean, unpaid, uh, uh, just whoever wants to come. It's been K-12 and higher educators, and especially as you're aware, uh, both K-12 teachers and uh, professors got caught last March and April, and some had literally never been a minute teaching online in their lives, and were all just tossed into it. And uh, so I, I just... I look through my sort of basket of strategies that I've used over 45 years. Yes, I'm 109 years old and, uh, and said, which of these translate to online? I've given two workshops. I'm giving another one tonight. <laughs> and uh, I don't think you have my email in front of you, but I'll, I'll post it in the chat later. And if some of you want to join me tonight at around 11 PM Eastern time, no 9 PM Eastern time, I'm giving the third one on uh, it's called 10 strategies, but there's actually 17. And I've tried to find strategies that I think translate to online. And so I won't go on and on about tonight's workshop, but, and I won't be talking about this tonight, but as uh, the education profs in the room know, the circle meeting or the classroom meeting has become pretty standard in elementary school. I've been using it in higher ed for about four years and I find students warm to it. I taught my first uh, synchronous online course last June and we had circle meetings at the start of every day and it worked. And I thought now these were ed students, so they know, they're not insulted by a, a strategy that K6 or K8 teachers use. But I thought the circle meeting, and some profs would think, what's the epistemology of a circle meeting? I mean, what can you possibly learn? Well, you learn community. And, and building online community, of course, is one of the challenges. And so I, I will post my email later in the chat. And uh, if you want to join me tonight, I'll send you the Zoom link. Um, so I'm working from 7 a.m. my time today till 9 p.m. my time today. And that's fine. Um, and I was paid to work for 45 years, so I'm happy to work for free today. It's a, it's a Tuesday special. I'm going to eat wings for supper as well since uh, it's Wings Tuesday, right? But uh, thank you, Priscilla. And uh, if, you, if you find or write the book on how to build community online, um, you will be doing a lot of people a favor, I think. So somebody else, any uh, um, conversation so far? We have about 20, 23 minutes left. Can um, maybe the way through. go ahead, Paul. Can maybe um, uh, we could get uh, responses if they're willing to uh, from Amy and from Deanna, who are doctoral students with us in a completely online format. Um, and I would be interested if uh, there is some response to uh, what Priscilla is saying with regard to online and community and, you know, just the whole experience. Well, I, I teach online and in person and take classes online. So I have kind of that both sides of that. And I would agree that it is a harder um, thing to do to build that community. Um, I actually, and I think it, it's, I also, I teach undergraduates and the level of commitment at that stage online, it's, very difficult to, to build community when it's only online versus the graduate students, I feel like, 
they're just putting more of their, and they're more mature and all of those things. Um, so, uh, you know, when everybody got forced into online in March, I think, you know, until we're forced to do something, sometimes we just don't even pay attention that it is a need. You know, I was listening to NPR this morning as I was driving my son to school and the, there's a, um, a wave of revamping all the state um, capital buildings and things like that because there's more people with disabilities who need to be able to get into the buildings and they haven't. And these buildings are hundreds of years old and until they have a senator who actually is in a wheelchair, nobody's really even thought about putting ramps in. And so I think that's where we are right now. It's like we're there's these programs are we're just the ramps need to be put in, you know, and I think it's going to come the more we the more we engage in it. But I do think it's a challenge for sure. Sorry for moving into metaphor land so quickly, but so for online, what are the ramps? Right. And. Uh, because yeah. all kinds of people, I, I'm hearing impaired, and it's an invisible disability, and mm -hmm. and so uh, unlike a visible disability, and so I suppose in online teaching, there are a great number of invisible disabilities, and ordinary uh, school teachers and academics are facing them this semester and going cr going crazy, as some of you know, um, struggling with how do I do this and uh, can I just show ninety. PowerPoint slides and or even put the slides on Moodle and not have to be there at all. So, but Deanna, uh, Paul had also asked if you want to come in on this question as a online doctoral student. I, um, I have found uh, the online student aspect is also um, informing my own instruction in terms of it does take effort to uh, respond to more than two or three required posts and to build that community of um, supporting your colleagues and um, developing a sense of trust with people, whether that be through um, the orchestrated um, scenarios or the team building things that are incorporated into the course. However, in teaching, um, I've taught online. Uh, off and on for the last several years and always do strictly online classes during the summer, but I'm a special educator by nature. And so I forwent the um, asynchronous of summer classes and made mine synchronous several summers ago. And students really seem to appreciate that transition of teaching strategies to the online platform even then. So the transition for me last spring was most difficult for student teachers and clinical interns. Uh, it was not so much classes of content, but uh, where you do get that humanistic aspect of support when your supervisor, although it's not to be threatening, but comes to your school to support you, to see you in action. So that whole dynamic and paradigm changed for me. Uh, as a student at SWU, I've had a great experience thus far. Thank you both. And Deanna, your last comment will probably show up in three of your committee members' uh, tenure promotion reports at the end of <laughs> okay. this academic year. Uh, one student thank said you. she enjoyed our program, so promote me, please. But thank you both. And I'm going to return uh, to the slides for a few minutes, and then we'll have I would a like final. Oh, can I say do. one other thing? You sure can. Um, I have a greatly appreciated that, um, although I work for 
uh, or in a Methodist affiliate uh, institution of higher ed. Um, I have never included a prayer forum uh, in my courses, and I have uh, appreciated that personally and professionally as an aspect of my online classes at SWU so far. Thank you. I, I want to say I agree that um, I was just thinking about that uh, in the course that I'm taking right now. There's uh, each week starts with a focus on on faith, and um, even though we're not really talking about it necessarily in our discussions, it's there. I think the um, question is whether you choose to engage in it, and that's where I I have chosen to. It's it's been really. Um, helpful to me to have um, it presented and then there's a connection to what we're learning and that I thought was has been done really well so I was I was going to comment on that um, it's intentional all the EDD professors um, they and, and it's also in the masters they connect your learning during that week to the devotions mm -hmm. and to the prayers. Mm -hmm. And and this is a, a little further integration of faith, I think, um, than when we first started. Because mm -hmm. when we first started, it was like, okay, have a prayer. But mm -hmm. so what? So what? How can we use this when we're talking about leadership? And mm -hmm. how can we use this when we're talking about assessment? And believe it or not, there's some instances in mm -hmm. faith integration that connect to this. Thank you. And thank y'all for the comment there. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to uh, share screen here for a few minutes and uh, we'll um, finish these slides. So this book that some have read um, again, uh, I believe this deeply, and I even want to think about my own uh, church, my own marriage. Uh, we don't all agree, and we don't have to. And I think we have to trust that the Spirit leads each other in the same way we hope the Spirit is leading us. And our last, uh, the last bullet, though, uh, I, again, uh, um, I think students' experiences enriched when. Uh, they know that we don't agree with each other, but we talk respectively about our differences. And uh, I don't think they should all get one perspective uh, in a in a class. And I'm disappointed when I hear that universities fire so-and-so because she or he uh, doesn't tow the party line. I think uh, not towing the party line enriches a student's experience, and especially on matters of faith. That said... Uh, we should probably be able to articulate our own respective models. That is what many call talk the walk. We should recognize the strength of other people's conceptions and the weaknesses of our own, which again won't happen unless I actually listen to you and uh, am willing to hear you uh, explain your view. And uh, some of you maybe saw this bit of news yesterday that Pew, uh, in a research project carried out since the election, uh, discovered that uh, four out of 10 Republicans and four out of 10 Democrats actually don't know somebody who voted for the other party in the election. That, that our bubbles aren't just internet bubbles, they're personal bubbles. And uh, we don't actually know uh, other people. Well, many of us don't actually know people who disagree with us. Um, 
So back to uh, the student uh, experience, or if you want to call it phenomenological uh, uh, question about the student's experience, uh, when we think about a seamless campus experience, uh, it's not just how I bring faith into my course in whatever area, but it's the whole, it's the whole program of the campus. Well, our different conceptions come into focus when we ask about the locus. And when I typed that, I thought, I want to wrap that, but I, I'm not a rapper, so I can't. But focus and locus, I'm sorry. And I know they go with hocus pocus, but I'm not going to try to put that together this morning. But when we talk about where does it happen, I think our different conceptions really come into focus. So is it in the student's mind? Is it in the student's heart and soul, desires, practices? Is it in the classroom? Again, this is where I was back in 1986. Is it in our academic planning and policies committees? Is it in the professor's character and professor's posture towards students? Is it in my professionalism, my expertise, how well I prepare and so on? Is it in these classroom moments? And those of you that have read Courage to Teach uh, know what, what Palmer talks about there. Is it in our campus policies? housing, food, recreation, parking, library, bookstore, student services, et cetera. I mean, where do we think this happens? And I think that's an important question. Well, my first book was actually a high school ethics text, and I didn't give it the title, but I did ask them to use the word worldviews because, again, this was uh, I was teaching in a Christian Reformed institution at the time. I was very much in this framework of it's how you think. And Scripture says, as a person thinks, right? So, I mean, there's good argument in Scripture for this idea that how you think is going to lead to how you behave. So, does it happen in the student's head? Well, I didn't choose the cover, but I've always thought this cover of, of this book was a was a really a head trip. It seemed to be about how we think, and uh, and then I want to ask, but what about what we do, our practices? Our desires, those of you that have read, read Jamie Smith's book, uh, Desiring the Kingdom, uh, are aware of his emphasis on, on practices. What if it's uh, my work as a professor in curriculum and instruction and in assessment and, and how I organize and run my class? What if it's got to do with our work in academic affairs or on the tenure promotion committee or on the provost council? Is that where it happens? And if your answer is that's where it happens, then that reveals a certain model, doesn't it? Maybe it's in the character of educators towards students. And some of you will not know these two educators, but your students all do, trust me. And uh, they've all seen these, these films. Every undergraduate uh, has seen these films. And, uh, you know, I know that Snape is not a real person. And he was played by a sweet actor who uh, some of you know died a year ago. but. Uh, uh, Miss Honey from Matilda, uh, those of you that teach education, if you ask your ed students uh, what teachers inspired you, um, Miss Honey from Matilda is going to appear on their list because uh, she was an inspiring teacher. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful film. It's darkly comic. And if you haven't seen it, you should. Does it happen in these moments in our classrooms that we can't plan or predict what we must accept as graces when they happen? And if you don't know what I mean by a moment, uh, I, you should probably look it up in Wikipedia. I'm not sure what they say there, but uh, I think all of us in the room have had these. And sometimes at the end, you think kind of, well, pinch myself. What, what happened there? And, uh, and of course, 
because we're academics, we want to analyze it, right? Um, this is the campus of the place I teach in Toronto. Beautiful campus. It was built by Catholics, and so it is beautiful. And then uh, Tyndale uh, University bought it some years ago. But it's the locus, perhaps, in the whole experience, this idea of the of uh, how the food services works and the bookstore and, and all these, these places where students experience uh, the university and to the experience it as life-giving or, or soul-sucking uh, uh, place. And so we come back to this list that I showed just a moment ago. I mean, where does it happen? And I think if you can identify where you think it happens, that probably reveals uh, how you understand um, faith and learning integration. I had a conversation with a young lady last night. I have the privilege of working with some of the students in the, in the doc program. And she's working on our comps. And one of the things that they would, that we do at SWU is integrate our learning outcomes um, within, you have to integrate that, our learning outcomes of the program within the, um, within the paper. And of course, we, one specific one is our ethic of care because that's the foundation of, of, of what we do at the school. But in talking, in listening to you and in talking with her last night, we were trying to figure out, okay, the points that she wanted to make based on her feelings, based on uh, what she wanted to convey to the reader um, and her and the importance of her to integrate her faith based on the topic. I discovered that our learning outcomes really could be tied to the efforts of integration of faith, if I make sense, mm. if I make sense. It's like each one of our learning outcomes in some sense is supported by a Christ-like principle. It's just a matter of what I'm interested in doing is figuring out, okay, let, let me look at these learning outcomes and see how they fit in a faith-based, um, how they fit as a faith-filled learning objective and how I can integrate that more, those outcomes more in a faith-based perspective in my class. Does that make sense? Absolutely. In the Faith and Learning book, um, there's a reference to Azusa Pacific who printed a document for faculty to use as they prepare their portfolios. And it's, uh, it's become about a seven, I think it's about 70 pages and it's available online. I didn't find it in preparation for this morning, but it, it details at the assistant level, at the associate level, at the full, what we would expect. And I think what you've described is right on the money. And I think it's what Azusa was trying to do uh, in their in their faculty document, and I'll find a link to that this morning and send it on so that it can be distributed. But I, Lisa, I, I hear I, I hear an article. <laughs> Sorry, I hear an article in what you're saying, and I I think you need to do it. I wrote a book some years back called Metaphors We Teach By, or edited I should say, and okay. what you describe, uh, Lisa, was um, some of what we were trying to get at in this book. And we weren't using, particularly we weren't framing this book as faith learning integration, but it's called uh, Metaphors We Teach By and it's on Amazon. And uh, I, uh, your comments especially made me think of Harold Van Brimland's chapter on assessment 
uh, and he ends his chapter by saying, assessment can be covenant. Mm. And I thought, now, uh, what department are you in, Lisa? Education. I'm in the school. Okay, well, you know this. Uh, the word covenant is not in the assessment conversation ordinarily. No. And and when I when you read Harold's chapter on on assessment as covenant, you think, oh, there's a deeply Christian understanding of what it means to covenant with a student about her learning. And and so I encourage you to buy this book. And seriously, this I get two cents a year on this book, so I'm not trying to make money here. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I, I made money by investing in plexiglass back in February and I don't need to, uh, I don't need to sell books, but I do encourage you. Uh, I think this is on Amazon metaphors we teach by, and you can't buy Ken's copy. Okay. That's my own, but you might get another copy, but Lisa, what you're talking about, I think is deeply Christian and I want to encourage you to keep at it and, and articulate it, bring uh, put it in print. I will. Well, no, good. Um, and in fact, um, my own trajectory, if you want to call it that, my own journey has been, I look now and I think, you know what? It's all of these things. It's about the student's mind and her whole experience. It's about her heart and her desires and what she does. And it's about what we do in the classroom. It's about what the committees do. Students don't even know about these committees. But it, there's very important work about faith and learning takes place in these meetings that we have to attend or get to attend or love to attend. And it is in my character and it is in my posture toward my students. And it is in how professional I am, whether I'm prepared and whether I'm an expert in my subject area and whether I know how to teach. And it is in those moments that Parker Palmer talks about. And I believe it is in uh, the whole uh, kind of campus uh, ethos that we together uh, construct and so I end with this slide and I don't know if I'll get back to this because I'm doing other things but if I do more work myself on questions of faith and learning I think I would like to write about the question I raised in that slide what I call the winsome offensive continuum and if Snape has his theology right but he's a bully uh, students aren't going to uh, move toward Christ. They're not going to turn their faces toward Christ because of his class. And and so for me, these two people, Miss Honey and Snape, are the two ends of continuum. And I think that um, as a Christian who wants to, uh, recently teaching in a public setting, uh, and now I still teach in this Christian setting, but as a Christian in a public setting, I want to be uh, winsome. And I want students to think, uh, you know, that interests me because I like him, but he's a Christian. And if I can get a few students to say that per year. Um, and it's been interesting, even uh, a student a couple weeks ago was having a terrible, different, you know, difficult time in her classroom. And I said, I know you're not a Christian page, but I'm going to pray for you. And she wrote, she emailed back. She said, thank you. That means a lot. And I thought, so here's a non-Christian telling me she's thankful that I'm going to pray for her. And, and so the, uh, whether you're in a public setting or in your cases in a Christian setting, um, I, I think winsomeness is, is a big part of it. So I end with that slide. I never dreamed I'd end with a Harry Potter slide in a plenary presentation, <laughs> but I thank you. I'm honored to be with you this morning and uh, I thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, 
Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition, wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments, those we choose to recognize and those that were sadly ignored, those decisions that were made with God in mind and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity. Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment, especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition, wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments, those we choose to recognize and those that were sadly ignored, those decisions that were made with God in mind and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity.